0: Hello, this is Real Estate Insights, the podcast from Savills that leaves no stone unturned in its search for understanding of the property world. And today we're taking a look at Savills' annual Impacts Research Programme, which each year dives deep into the biggest issues confronting all areas of real estate. In the next 20 minutes or so, we'll look at the geopolitical situation, the economy, sustainability, technology, something called the near-shoring index, and much else besides. All under this year's Impact's theme of ReConnect.
1: Real-time data is about sharing data with your citizens and the citizens with the governments and improving day-to-day life.
2: We assess what makes a successful city in today's world and New York and London still top that list. But what's been really interesting is the rise of these smaller locations. Supply
3: chains will start reorientating towards where location decision is based on things like resilience and also things like ease of doing business and low political risk.
0: I'm Guy Ruddle, and as usual with the Impacts Research Programme, we've brought together some of the leading lights of Savills Research Team from around the world. Uh, All of them, apart from one, uh, have been on uh, on the podcast before, and I'll introduce you to that one in a second. But let's start with Paul Tostevin, who's head of Savills World Research, and he leads the Impacts Programme. Paul, how are you? Are you exhausted? I am, but looking forward to talk about the programme. Excellent. Uh, Oliver Salmon is a director in the World Research Team. He's the only one who's new to Real Estate Insights. Olive, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Guy. Thanks for having me. Eri mitsis is... Savile's World Research Director. She's usually in Assis, where we normally speak to her from, but she's in the studio this time. Eri, welcome to London.
1: Good to be back, Guy.
0: Sarah Dreyer is Vice President and Head of America's Research. She was on the podcast talking about impacts two years ago. She's back now. at six o'clock in the morning where Sarah is. Sarah, thanks for waking up so early for us.
4: Happy to. Happy to. Anytime to join for this. And Swapnil
0: Pillai is Savile's lead researcher in the Middle East, where it's slightly later in the day. Swapnil, thank you for joining us again. Thank you very much, Guy. Nice to speak to you. So we have a lot to get through. uh, So let's crack on with it. Uh, Let me start with Paul. Paul, why don't you you tell us why you've chosen this theme of ReConnect for this year's Impacts project? So the, the, the world is opening up again. The
2: pandemic isn't yet behind us, but people are coming together and reconnecting. Uh, at the same time, we've got lots of change in the world, health, environmental, geopolitical change. So we're looking at the role of real estate in this environment, um, and in particular, how these different levels of, of change and reconnecting are affecting it. So everything from the reconnecting of people, how it's affecting workforces, through to reconnecting
0: buildings with the environment and, and the places in which they're located. So let's start then on, on some of those changes. Uh, uh, Paul mentioned the geopolitical uncertainty and, the, and the, there are lots of implications around that. Oliver, we are in a very uncertain situation. How should or how are you know, people in the real estate world reacting to that?
3: Well, you're you're absolutely right. You know, geopolitical risk is, by some measures, uh, higher in in several decades. Um, Clearly, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is a catalyst for this. But there's a wider recalibration of uh, relationships in East and West, you know, U.S.-China decoupling. And also, you know, even at the national level, politics is is very polarized, particularly in the U.S. and also across Europe. And what the war in Ukraine has really done is brought geopolitics into the boardroom. We've seen uh, some work done by by the Yale Business School, for example, that you know there's a thousand plus companies have withdrawn from Russia, going beyond the, the requirements of, of national sanctions. So this is really starting to shape the way in which um, you know globalization, in particular, and how that's going to 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 move on in the next five or ten years. And one way in which we've explored this within the, the, the impacts programme is uh, through supply chains. Clearly, Covid-19 was a, a huge watershed moment for supply chains. And geopolitics, as well as issues such as sustainability, are really going to drive you know, potentially a big shift in supply chains going forward.
0: Sarah, are you seeing the effects of all this geopolitical uncertainty come through in decisions by occupiers in the US yet?
4: So, in terms of demand guide, no, not just yet. The industrial sector is on fire, and we're seeing record demand in key industrial hubs all across the U.S. But the rising transportation costs are driving that demand closer to ports, and with limited supply that's resulting in steep rent growth for industrial product, particularly for buildings that are closer to port locations.
0: Which leads us on to I, I'm, what I'm most excited about today, which is a new index. Ollie, the briefest possible summary you can of what a nearshoring index is. Sure. Nearshoring is not a new
3: concept. But what we're arguing is that with, with geopolitics, with the, the you know, seismic change coming out of COVID-19, uh, that supply chains will start reorientating towards more of a, a nearshoring Uh, type of of relationship where location decision is based on things like resilience uh, by ESG principles and also things like ease of doing business and low kind of political risk. And this means that a trend of nearshoring is more likely uh, in the future versus, you know, our traditional supply supply chain model that was driven very much on minimising costs.
0: Right. So, I mean, at at its simplest terms, uh, a British company which was sourcing from uh, uh, China may not source from China anymore. It may not even onshore and source from the UK, but it might say, "Well, hold on. There's a, a, a in, within Europe. There's a good place to to have a warehouse. Is that or or, or buy materials from and, uh, and what have you? Is that basically the uh, right?
3: Yeah, exactly. So that increases the resilience of supply." And it also reduces the carbon footprint. And that's important because, you know, thinking about sustainability, you know, up to 90% of a company's uh, total carbon footprint is located within their supply chain. You know, and with the, you know, the impending climate crisis, inevitably regulation needs to include scope three emissions. And therefore, nearshoring provides a, you know, a viable path for firms to meet their carbon
0: commitments in the future. And Eri, where, what, in, within you know, the parts, various different parts of the world, where does that create opportunity, do you think?
1: Well, it, crea- it creates opportunities in, uh, in locations which are near the big markets. Um, So we have like in Europe, we have Eastern European uh, markets, for example, where they have like lower labor costs, etc. And generally in places where there is availability of skilled labor and labor costs are slightly, uh, slightly lower. Also, property uh, plays a role in terms of cost and availability of space as well.
0: So Swapnil in in the Middle East, it, it... It, is that is it an opportunity for you for, for your part of the world this near shoring concept
5: yeah absolutely guy i think uh, in this part of the world uh, domestic resilience and diversification of the economy has been one of the key agendas for local governments over the last few years and i think what the pandemic has kind of highlighted is some of the challenges that uh, supply chain bottlenecks might bring to the region uh, uh, you know in the future because majority of the uh, goods that are consumed in this part of the world are all exported and manufacturing is quite limited at this point in time. But the government is keen on kind of changing that going forward and has invested a considerable amount of money in making sure that it uh, it is secure from a food perspective. Uh, it is participating uh, in the manufacturing uh, of, of uh, high-tech goods as well as automotives in this part of the world. And we're seeing that kind of Uh, having a a ripple effect on the property market here as well. So we've seen a lot of investment-grade warehousing stock being developed close to uh, major ports such as uh, Jabal Ali Port, which is like the ninth largest port in the world. We're seeing a lot of activity again happening in uh, Abu Dhabi, which uh, which is the capital of UAE. Uh, and uh, Saudi Arabia Saudi Arabia in itself is a large uh, large consumption uh, driven market uh, and the government there is keen on diversifying and uh, and is building uh, and is expanding its uh, port capability as well as its uh, manufacturing capabilities.
0: So let's talk a little bit about other sort of geopolitical things, things that, are, that you know that, that are having an impact on the on the property world. Obviously, inflation, Oli, you know, we're seeing proper inflation for the first time in quite a long while. How are, you know, how are investors, particularly in, in real estate, how are they likely to or how should they react to that?
3: Yeah, look, inflation is, is clearly a challenge at the moment, not only on its impact on economic growth, but also... On its impact on on interest rates. Central banks are rapidly withdrawing monetary policy support from the pandemic era and that's going to feed through into investment volumes. Uh, What we're seeing is a sharp rise in the risk-free rate that's going to squeeze premiums, rising cost of borrowing as well and then inflation is is likely to squeeze uh, future uh, income streams as well. So all of these are are negative for for kind of real estate investors as they are generally for, for other asset classes as well
1: It is indeed a challenge. Um, and, um, and uh, you know, like we have uh, also rising construction costs, which limit the development uh, activity, makes it more uncertain for developers to plan ahead. But at the same time, the positive of, of real estate is that... It has been historically considered as a hedge against inflation because of the rental income, uh, and in some markets, uh, you know, you you do have even you know the 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 lease contracts linked to inflation. So that I think will keep uh, investor interest in uh, in real estate.
3: Just to build on on Arie's point there. Um, Fundamentals within the sector are going to be increasingly important. Eri's right that historically real estate has helped to provide a hedge in inflation. But also, occupied demand is really important, in that story. so without decent economic growth and occupied demand, landlords don 't have pricing power to increase rents so then you 're thinking about fundamentals within the sector, so supply and demand, so for example, we you know we talk about industrial and multifamily that have structural tailwinds that mean a lack of supply and strong demand have have kept you know income. You know, robust income and growth robust so there's more of a focus on fundamentals within the markets in a scenario now where it's high risk um, squeezing returns
0: yeah so that so multi multi-family uh, you you've mentioned as, as, as a good area uh, life sciences comes out in 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 the impact report area as, as another good area why, why particularly that
1: well, it was before already. Uh, the you know, li- life sciences is, is a growth sector, and now it's becoming even more. Uh, following the pandemic, there is going to be a lot of of, uh, of investment into this uh, space. Um, so we have uh, in our report we highlight a few hotspots in the US in in China also in the UK in uh, in France in Switzerland Australia so uh, it's it and, and and there is going to be a new trend within the sector we believe uh, linked to the theme before we were talking before about nearshoring it is likely that in order to to deal with these disruptions that uh, the, the the companies faced you know, with the supply chain disruptions on bringing medical supplies and pharmaceuticals close to, the, uh, to people, this is going to be dealt with with some near-shoring uh, po- uh, kind of uh, strategies, if you like, bringing manufacturing closer to science.
0: I think we, we have to talk about uh, resilient cities. This is one of my favourite things on Real Estate Insights. When we get to talk about impact, we talk about the resilient cities uh, index, uh, Paul. You're particularly interested in sort of mid sized cities. Are you, or uh, w- what you call mid-tier cities in 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 resilience? T- t- tell me a bit w- about what you mean by that.
2: That's right. So w- we assess what makes a successful city in in today's world, and New York and London still top that list. Big, big sort of still matters. But what's been really interesting is the rise of these smaller locations. So take for example Boston. We just heard about life sciences. It is a global life sciences hub. By size, it's only a top 25 city in the US, but it's in the top 10 of our index. Um, that's because it attracts lots of VC. It has uh, a big talent base as well, so good sort of employment prospects too. Um, similarly, Berlin, another example, uh, has moved into the top 10. A lot of investment flowing into Berlin actually surpassed uh, London and Paris last year. And again, actually uh, you know, relatively good ESG credentials too in that city, so, so ticking a lot of the boxes.
0: Sarah, Paul mentioned Boston there as being a top resilient city. What other cities in your part of the world do you think share the same characteristics that could see them replicate Boston's success?
4: Yeah, Boston is certainly a model of a resilient city for many factors. It's a wonderful city. I'm so lucky I just was able to visit our new teams there a few weeks ago. Um, Boston, it's got a diverse industry base. It includes tech, life sciences, healthcare, financial services, and law firms. It has access to amazing talent pool due to its concentration of top tier universities. And it's really got high quality of life factors. I think there are a number of markets that stand out and certainly certainly, larger markets like New York, Los Angeles, Seattle and Atlanta that have a lot of these factors as well. And also smaller markets like Raleigh, Charlotte, Austin and Phoenix, which are seeing a lot of interest from organizations due to their large, large talent pools, their high quality of life factors and relatively lower costs compared to some of the larger markets. I could see these appearing or rising on the resilient cities rankings in the coming years.
0: I think one of the things we haven't mentioned yet uh, specifically is energy prices, energy security? I mean, we, uh, Ollie, we've talked about Ukraine. Um, how big an impact is this? Have is this going to have as we go forward? Is the energy situation going to have on, on, on the whole real estate sector? Well, a huge impact. You know, as if
3: the climate emergency wasn't enough, um, we now have a, a huge issue around energy security. And uh, what you're seeing, particularly in, in Europe, is an acceleration of the transition to reduce that dependence on Russia for oil and gas. Um, renewables, they provide a very viable path towards energy security and also you know, fit the bill in terms of sustainability and, and environmental um, you know, targets. Uh, for real estates, the issue here now is, is around stranded assets. Uh, So regulation is definitely going to catch up. And, you know, investors, and clearly we see this now with a, 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 you know, big bifurcation between kind of prime and secondary assets. Uh, Investors and occupiers are increasingly demanding the best in class environmental buildings. Um, And, you know, this is going to be a a huge
0: topic going forward. And that whole uh, sustainability thing, Erie, uh, is a big part of the resilience index as well, isn't it? You know, and it, where where do you know? I mean, we talk about it quite a lot, but but where do we sort of go next on it? You know, what how how much of a how much of a sort of focus does it need to be for everybody?
1: It it requires uh, everybody's full focus, but there are all these big challenges that we are uh, discussing now. Um, and uh, nevertheless, I mean. City, uh, cities, countries are setting net zero targets and, and gradually they are becoming more and more strict, more and more legally binding. Um, and there are regulations that will control them. Companies need to meet their ESG, environmental, social and governance criteria. So it is a pressing issue. Hopefully, we're not going to go backwards with uh, with under the current circumstances. There might be a delay. But at at the same time, there is more, more pressure to achieve these goals.
0: What's the approach to net zero in the US, Sarah, especially in the sort of offices sector? Houston, San Francisco, Chicago and New York seem to be ahead of the pack in volume of green offices, aren't they?
4: Yes, looking, looking at the comparisons, the U.S. is certainly leading in terms of the percent of office stock with LEED certifications, and this is only going to continue to grow as more legislation on environmental requirements comes into place, and especially now as occupiers are really focused on sustainability as a critical factor in their leasing decisions. I think there's still significant opportunity to increase in markets that you mentioned, as well as markets like Washington, D.C., Denver, and Charlotte, where the percent of sustainable buildings is a bit lower, and that may be achieved through repurposing, particularly as dated, less sustainable buildings are likely to lag in tenant demand, they're just not the buildings that occupiers are focused on right now. Um, Sustainability was important to tenants before the pandemic, and this is only heightened as employee health and wellness and environmental impact have become increasingly more important to employers and organizations. So I think with owners, investors, and the government focused on setting net zero goals, we'll see this reflected not only in new building construction and repurposing, but also also in building management and operations.
0: Swapnil, sort of in your part of the world, is it as big a focus as it as it appears to be uh, in, say, Europe and, and, and the Americas?
5: Yeah, absolutely, Guy. I think uh, climate change and rising temperatures uh, is particularly a major threat for the Middle East uh, as a region. And as every mentioned, the construction and real estate sector have a major role to play in uh, you know, tackling climate change. There is a strong... Uh, construction and real estate supply uh, that is likely to come uh, online uh, in the next few years. As a stat, there are close to $2.5 trillion worth of construction projects, either planned or under construction across the region. Naturally, there, there is a strong push for office spaces as well as residential uh, spaces uh, to be more sustainable. But because of the quantum of construction activity that is happening here,
0: Uh, it will have uh, it will have sort of uh, some sort of an impact on the on on the environment one other thing we haven't really talked about it it, 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 in any great detail yet is the sort of the technological change paul that that, that's happening in 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 everything but particularly around offices and uh, and work what are your main themes uh, around that and main things that, that people need to think about
2: it is a big topic and yeah i mean technology has enabled the hybrid working that many of us have been doing for the last two or so years uh i mean we we've looked at it also in a new way specifically at how that's impacting Beyond the mark uh, the office markets, even the residential markets looking at actually long term remote workers and have done a piece around executive nomads and um, some of the markets that they're moving to uh, in if they're sort of working in more footloose industries and actually how that's driving um, even sort of prime residential markets in places as diverse as sort of the Caribbean, Dubai. Uh, Barcelona and, and Lisbon, um, uh, you know, attracted to, because people can prioritise perhaps lifestyle um, uh,
0: over some other things. Swapnil, on the cities from the executive nomads, Dubai comes really high up. You're you're at the centre of the of the next wave, Swapnil. Right. Uh, I think
5: the city offers a great quality of life. It is consistently ranked high as one of the safest cities in the world and is within a four-hour flight from one third of the global population. So all these factors uh, kind of made sure that Dubai became a preferred destination for uh, these digital nomads when they were looking for a new space to uh, work remotely from.
0: And Arion, you know, sort of s- slightly going back towards sustainability and 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 green smart cities and and the like. Th- th- this is the sort of the big opportunity from technology, right?
1: Absolutely, uh, technology is going to to help cities to. Plan better for the future, become greener, become smarter, uh, cleaner, uh, and uh, and technology is going to, is going to be. I mean, it is the Internet of Things that as that's how smart cities started. It's about real time data. It's about sharing data with your citizens and the citizens with the governments and improving day to day life. But it's also about uh, implementing technology to projects in order to monitor, you know, the performance, you know, the quality of the air, the waste management, you know, a lot of different uh, aspects. A very interesting technology that uh, that we see evolving and it's supposed to, to be... Uh, transformational for urban planning is is uh, is the digital twins, and some cities in the world are, are implementing this. It's like creating a, 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 a kind of a, a, a virtual copy of the city, and and then and then you monitor how the city performs, but you also test some policies before you implement them in then in the real world.
3: Technology is, is, is clearly also very important from a, a wider perspective. Thinking about you know, the push to renewables, now a lot of the locations where renewable energy is is uh, generated is quite uh, isolated, and you know there are issues around storage and also transmission of that um, you know energy to the power grids. And there's a lot of kind of smart technology that is helping develop the infrastructure behind that.
0: I sort of rather feel that we've we've barely scratched the surface of, of of the impacts report, but we we can't go without doing our new-ish feature of tell me something I don't know. I think we'll just stick with people in the studio. We'll start with Ollie first of all. Ollie, Ollie's pointing at Paul, saying start with Paul. So we've got to start with Ollie. Ollie, tell me something I don't know. <laughs> OK, well, I mean, look, something that struck me was interesting
3: is the work around uh, net zero targets for cities and particularly the ambition of a place like Copenhagen to go net zero by 2025, which really is is not a long way away. And clearly, you know, a huge kind of challenge on the sustainability issue is getting you know, the same levels of ambition and commitment from big cities, you know, top 100 cities account for about 18% of the global carbon footprint. So you know, getting that level of ambition and commitment and, and using case studies like Copenhagen is going to be really key.
0: Yeah. Eri, tell me something I don't know.
1: Well, I mean, you probably know that big cities are likely to uh, grow bigger in uh, in the coming years. Uh, Maybe you also know that this growth is going to come from Asia, so Asian cities and uh, Asia-Pacific cities um, are are going to be actually, you know, half of the urban population of the world will be there by 2030. But for our industry, the investment opportunity for uh, investing into green buildings, because all these people living there will need houses and schools and offices and shops and all that, is about it is estimated by the World Bank at about 18 trillion dollars wow. by 2030.
0: <laughs> That's a big number, uh, Paul. I'll leave the last word to you. Tell me something I don't know. So, building on our, dis- our discussion of supply chains, uh,
2: Virgin Hyperloop is developing a freight transportation system in in vacuum tubes, uh, which can reach speeds of up to 760 miles an hour. And uh, critically, it has zero direct uh, emissions and very little noise pollution.
0: Thank you all very much for that. And Swapnil and Sarah, thank you both very much for your time today. That's it for this episode of Real Estate Insights. If all it's done is whetted your appetite for more information, you can, of course, delve into the whole of the Impacts program. Nearly 70 pages of insights and wisdom. And I promise you, I've read it, and it's definitely worth it. You can find it at Savills.com impact. That's it, as I say, for this episode. Thank you very much for listening and see you next time.
3: This podcast is for general information only and should not be considered professional advice. Savils accepts no liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect or consequential loss arising from the use of, reference to or reliance on this podcast or its content. Savils makes no warranty as to the accuracy of the information in this podcast.